when when I was starting Bleacher Report was a cousin of one of my co-founders. This guy, Jake Lodwick, had been a co-founder of College Humor. And College Humor was an early breakout media website. It was kind of a, a mix of a lot of things, but obviously comedy focused. And Jake, who I had known growing up and we had made goofy videos together when we were in high school. He started with a a couple friends in college and they had become successful and and it had had been doing well. And then right around the time that I was starting Bleacher Report, they ended up selling it to IAC and had a good exit and and had like a, a really great success story. So that was that was a big inspiration seeing someone who I knew who had a personal connection to who was young, who was also kind of figuring things out on the fly, be able to go out and take a project like that with a few friends and make it successful. And it was very much kind of the template for what my co-founders and I at Bleacher put together. It's like, Hey, if, if they can do it, we can, we're young, we're friends. We're passionate about this idea. We, we really feel like we can, we can just kind of do it ourselves. We don't need to ask for anyone's permission, which is huge. And again, going back to that contrast between working at a company where you're trying to work your way up the ladder, where it's very much everything is permission-based, to be able to just do it on your own is, is huge. In this episode, I talked to Dave Nemetz, who founded Bleacher Report, and uh, he sold that company to Turner Sports back in 2012. He started another company called The Inverse, sold that as well. And along the way, he has been an advisor to Sam Power at The Hustle and Elite Dairy and a bunch of other startups as well. And along with that, right now, he is going through this journey as a solo creator, working on this Twitter Spaces show called The Audience Builders. And I personally love it. I listen to every single episode. I make notes and I've known Dave for a few months now. And it was good to finally have him and just talk about stuff. And so I hope you enjoy it. Uh, and here we go. Obviously, you have done a lot of things in your life, but I guess I want to start with Bleacher Report because it's something that you started while you were working a full-time job. And you write in your blog that the whole time you worked at Endeavor, which is the organization that you worked for at that time, I lived a double life. And you go on writing that you're working 12-hour shifts and you would find the time to still work on this side project that ultimately became this big media brand. And so I meet a lot of entrepreneurs who are, or maybe even creators who are doing full-time jobs, studying college and whatever they're doing as a creator, it's on the side. So how did you find the motivation to work on your side project while you were so busy with your day job? And I guess one of your comments was you would love to talk about the benefits of having a side project while you're working full-time job. So maybe you could give some of your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I think, so this was, this was early in my career. I, I had just uh, graduated from college. Endeavor was my, my first uh, real job out of college. And Endeavor, for those who don't know, it's like the classic Hollywood talent agency. Now they're huge. They own the UFC and they, they, you know, all sorts of stuff. But back then they were kind of still like the, the new talent agency on the block. But very, that was very much like a entry level paying your dues, starting on the very bottom rung of the ladder type of job. 
And in in uh, these agencies, a big thing is everyone starts in the mailroom and it's kind of like the rite of passage that you start in the mailroom and your first thing is you show up and you, you're wearing a full suit and you have to go or, you know, formal work attire and you have to sort the mail and then walk around the building and deliver mail uh, to all the different agents. That was that was my experience. And there's a lot of a lot of drudgery in, in that life and just being kind of the the lowest person in the org structure, you know, really feeling like there was a long, long path to being able to do anything interesting, which while it was tough for anyone who's worked a tough job like that, it does, it builds humility, it builds resiliency. You know, you learn to kind of have a long-term perspective so I did have, I did get a lot of value out of that. And I also got value in kind of seeing how this bigger, more cutthroat organization worked. At the same time, while I was doing that, Bleach Report became my lifeline and became, it was really the one thing that I had at the time that I, had, I felt like I had true agency over. And I think it's just something that if you are working a job, whether it's a, a entry level bottom rung job like that, or even it's something something higher level where you you are a little bit more in control, it does. You, ultimately, you're you're working for someone else. You're you're doing it for other reasons, whether it's a paycheck, whether it's experience, whatever. I think it really does help to have that that other project that's something on the side that you feel like you you truly own and control and have agency over and that you can kind of put your creative energy into. And I think there's a there's a great benefit to that overall. I think for me in this job, I found time for Bleacher Report because it was it was something where I felt like I could truly make an impact on. Whereas you know the the path to do that at Endeavor was so so long and unclear and even though i didn't know at the time i didn't have a crystal ball whether bleach report would become anything it it at least it it, it it was something that i i could truly put my own stamp on and so you know i i would after working those long shifts i would get on conference calls with my co-founders or i would use my breaks to be doing research for how we would build the website or recruit writers or grow our audience and that that was something that in the tough times of working that job kept me going for sure. Yeah. And how many hours were you putting into Bleacher? Man, I, I don't know if I could really <laughs> remember or quantify it. I mean, it felt like those were the only things. And something else I remember is just kind of the the compromises that that you would have to make early on. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs, founders, creators too, I think experience this where when they're still, when they're just starting out, when it's small, you have some people in your life who, who who encourage you and support you, but a lot of people kind of give you that sideways look of like, why are you doing that? Uh, and I remember there were times where I would finish up a long day and I was still in my early twenties. My, my, my other college friends or, or buddies around would be at going out to you know get drinks at the bar or whatever to blow off steam. And I'd be like, oh no, I got to go home and work on my sports website. And to them, the reaction was like, are you kidding me? Like, you, like what is this, this dumb little project you're working on? No, they, they 
I'm sure they uh, eventually came around, but at the time they, they were, I think, very skeptical of what I was doing. And that was hard as well. But I think, again, it was like that drive of, all right, this is something that it, it could be my ticket out of the drudgery of the job, or even if it's not, it's, it's something that I feel like I can, I can really, I can really make an impact with. Right. I think a lot of independent creators can absolutely relate to that. And uh, yeah, I guess one of the other things that happened at Endeavor was you became a part of this digital task force. And as it happens with any big organization, and I work for a software MNC, and we have these digital transformation groups. And what happens is they're like full of jargons. They never approach problems from first principles perspective. And there's a point where you understand that you can't even make them look at it how you are looking at it. And you fell into that trap as well, which you have been very open about in your other venture after Bleacher Report. And right now with audience builders, you're really reaching out to extremely young creators and trying to learn from them how they are trying to build an audience, whether it's on Twitter, whether it's on TikTok or newsletter or, po- or podcast, or whatever. And so what are the lessons that you learned with your failure that you're trying to correct with audience builders? Yeah, I, I think it's it's really kind of the the starting with with learning and, and curiosity. And when I you know you referenced kind of the, the you know, I've written about my experience starting Inverse, which was a media company I started a few years after selling a Bleacher Report. And with Inverse, I think I, I really took the perspective of I have a playbook. I've I've built something before with Bleacher. I'm gonna just use that playbook. And kind of try to cut out some of the, you know, some of the extraneous parts or some of the things that didn't work. And I, I, in hindsight, I didn't really stop and kind of take a step back and say, all right, well, what is like, how is this business different? How do, what is, how do I need to approach this differently? What has changed about the time period or the audience or the technology available? And, well, I certainly didn't try to just replicate everything that that happened at Bleacher Report. I think there was a little too much of a kind of a a drive to, I would say, just just kind of lean on the experience, the previous experience, without taking that first principles approach that you talked about. And and I think it, you know we we got it to uh, a decent outcome, but I think a lot of those kind of early. Uh, missteps could have been corrected had I taken a little bit more of an organic approach to thinking about it and taking a you know step of you know that that idea of taking you know building it step by step and a lot of what I'm doing right now I mean audience builders is I don't even know where exactly where it goes it's it started as an experiment as a side project more as a passion project with I which I think kind of even in itself that's a little bit more of a first principles approach than just saying. I have a formula. I have a playbook. I'm just going to go build off of that, and I'm really letting it unfold organically, and really letting my my curiosity around this space drive it. And for me, I'm fascinated by the creator economy and just the this kind of new world of creators in general. It has a lot of overlap with the media world that I come from, but there's a lot of new things as well. And so, audience builders is kind of a way for me to to scratch that that itch of of curiosity and and just explore that space and see how it unfolds organically right and talking about the creator economy like i think balaji has written a lot about this which is that 
there are legacy media companies that have great distribution. Uh, millions of people read them, but they have a terrible product. And this could be some of the biggest business publications as well, where if you read 100 articles, you get to see the templates that they use for each headline. And it's all like clickbaity and all those stuff. And then go to writers on Substack. And like Packy is a great example of that. Like all these detailed posts on startups I've never heard of. And it's so fascinating to read those. And Balaji says that like these are all creators who don't have a lot of distribution, but they have a great product. And while you were working at Bleacher, you went to this this partnership with CBS Sports where they had a great distribution and you had a new exciting product and you partnered with them and that worked really well for Bleacher. And so how can independent creators replicate that in this environment? Yeah, yeah. So when we did that deal with Bleacher or with CBS, I mean, that was one of the big first early breakthroughs for us. And we were this small, relatively unknown website. And we did a deal where, where CBS started featuring links to our stories across all of their, their team pages. And that was really the key is that Bleacher from very early on, one of the, one of the, one of the goals or, or one of the part of the big part of the vision was really covering individual teams in, in an in-depth way from this, this fan centric point of view, because we saw that sites like CBS or like ESPN, weren't really covering the teams at a deep level because they were nationally focused or in some cases globally focused sites where they they covered the biggest stories and the biggest national headlines and they kind of left everything else to just the box scores. So that's that was where Bleacher came in and that was why we were then a natural natural partner because we were able to provide something that they didn't really have. And and I think also I would imagine we did it in a fairly non-threatening, non-competitive way because we were small, because we were more fan-centric at the time we were, we were all user-generated. I don't think they saw us as a threat to their business model, although over time we became, you know, we, we outgrew the CBS and some of the other sites that we partnered with. So I think it's it's kind of a few different things. I mean, that was the classic kind of in, innovator's dilemma approach. We took on a segment of the market that they kind of overlooked. We did it in a in a uh, a low cost way that 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 they just never would have thought to do because they were focused on other things and we kind of outcompeted in that space and then continued to kind of grow up the value chain. But for an individual creator, I think it's looking at these media brands and and thinking about what they can provide that those those media companies aren't really doing themselves and. And really pitching them in that way, and I think for for most of them, it's just that voice and that insight. Like you say, Packy McCormick, he's he is writing so in depth and with both so much detail, but also so much passion and, and in such an entertaining way that I think you know you you would not see anything like that in a typical business or tech focused publication. So I think. If you're someone like that, I mean, he's grown enough where I don't think he needs it. But if you're if you're starting out and you're in that space, it's looking at kind of where you know where the the bigger media publications in your category are, how they're covering your topics, and really pitching them on why you're doing it differently and why you're doing it in a non directly competitive way, but one that can really be complementary uh, to what they already have. And I think that's 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 the way. I mean, the challenge is obviously. Sometimes media 
companies can be very slow to adapt. And it's a question of, do you want to do the work to try to partner with them? Or do you want to just try to, to continue to you know, build out your own, your own audience and your own niche? Right. And do you think media in general is going in a direction where instead of people watching news at CBS or Fox or CNN, they will go to independent creators who are writing about politics or entrepreneurship or globalization or whatever? I mean, I think that's, it's already well on that path. And I think, you know, it's a generational thing. I think, you know, there's, if you look at who's watching cable news or, you know, who's, who's using, you know, kind of getting most of their news from like the New York Times or USA Today or something like that. It's mostly an older demographic. And so, I mean, there's, there's still a lot of good viewership numbers around that. But if you will look at the way millennials or Gen Z get their news and information, it's from these direct sources from either smaller niche publications or from individual creators or in newsletters or, or what have you. And I think that that is is only going to continue. And, you know, it's it's becomes just a question of like how much how much fragmentation is there out there? Are people, you know, kind of going so deep into niches that that they kind of lose that broader perspective of what's going on in the world or become more susceptible to misinformation or anything like that. But I think that, you know, that trend is, is no question. It's already well underway. Right. And as a creator, like you are creating a lot of content for audience builders and you have written a lot about deep work or the flow state and how you get into it. And so like, what are your thoughts on deep work as a creator? I've really found that one of the, one of the, unexpected benefits of COVID and the pandemic and then working from home is kind of the creating a, a better environment for deep work and for kind of having that that spaciousness to be able to, to kind of stop and think about things. It's something that I've, I've always appreciated. I've always sought out, but I think like a lot of other people, you get in the office environment, the startup environment, you're busy, you're running from meeting to meeting, you're you're multitasking and cramming things in. And it, it it's not an environment that's really conducive to being able to stop and do that kind of deep work. And so I love the ability to to work from home and to, to have more time. And I think it it as we return to what looks more like normal life, it's really just about scheduling the time to do it and understanding when you are most productive and ensuring that you have an environment that is uncluttered both physically and mentally and allows you to be able to do that. I'm also a huge proponent of meditation. And that's something that I think just kind of helps to prime your your mental state for being able to get into that that mode of like really intense focus and if you can even even just take 10 minutes a day to like sit and whether it's guided or whether on your own, just just, you know, kind of focus on being present in that moment that can give you so many benefits to then being able to have those periods of deep work where you're intensely focusing on a, a task or a project for for hours at a time or, or you know, however long that that lasts. Right. And do you block your calendar for that? I, I try to block as block time in my calendar for those types of things as much as possible. I find it's like, 
you know, you, you, you need to, if, the, if it's something that you're prioritizing, you need to block out the time for it. You need to create those windows. If you just leave it to chance, then you, you know, you let your calendar control you. If, you know, then things get added to it and all of a sudden you're trying to cram in little amounts of work, you know, in like the, the 20 minute breaks between meetings or whatever. And that's, that's never a way to get anything done. Right. And as a creator, I think a lot of people struggle with, I'm blocking my calendar because I want to be productive. I want to hit all my deadlines, but then I also need free time where I can think creatively. So how do you balance those two things? I mean, I think there's a couple of things that I've done and look, I'm, I'm also, I'm always struggling to, to get the right balance and to get the right approach. And I, I don't think anyone, if, even if they claim to have, have figured it all out, I think it's, it's always you know, something that you have to work on. But I, I really loved listening to, to Jerry Seinfeld on the Tim Ferriss podcast a few months ago and talking about his process and really for the creative process, really making that a regimented thing and in blocking out time, but really setting finite limits around it. You know, you're not going to try to sit, sit and write for three hours at a time if you're just starting to build a writing habit. Block out 30 minutes and whether you write something that's great or you're just typing out pure crap, just make sure you do it. Make sure you you focus for that time period. And then you check that off the list for the day and then you can do it again the next day. And so I think creating those like finite time blocks is is super important. At the same time, I, I totally agree that it's good to kind of have those like times for just like letting kind of things flow creatively without being in like a focused like uh, task uh, oriented mode. I do, I try to do as much as I can, not, not necessarily every day, but uh, you know, morning journaling and just wake up in the morning, grab a notebook, kind of write uh, just, uh, just free, free association, you know, free train of thought writing, which I think helps just shake the cobwebs loose. I think walking is great. I try to take as many just random walks as possible or, you know, do phone calls, on walks and then have that time to you know, afterwards just to 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 let the mind wander. But I think it all comes back to just really making sure to be really disciplined about owning your schedule and not not over scheduling, not saying yes to too many things, not trying to do too much, knowing that you have a limited amount of energy to put into things and that if you let too much of that get filled up and get applied towards other things, you're not going to be able to have that that creative time that you want. Right. And as a creator, a lot of what you create is a lot of what you consume. And biology has written a lot of this. If you want to script computers, you write code. And if you want to script humans, you create content. And so if we could go back to Dave who was in his early 20s, working at Endeavor, work like trying to start Bleacher Report, what are the kinds of things that you are consuming? Like maybe it was travel, maybe meeting exciting people, reading books or learning a few lessons from your favorite bands. What were the things that you were consuming that scripted you to be able to start Bleacher Report? Yeah. So I love this question. And I mean, there's a few things thinking back to that time that, that really inspired me and I think you know helped shape my worldview. So I was working at Endeavor because I was really into... Uh, film and just the entertainment industry in general. I'd gone to school for film, and that's that was kind of big, big dream of mine. 
to to break into that world and as a as kind of a a a film buff like i was very into the the kind of the era of like the 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 filmmakers of the 70s scorsese and and kubrick and coppola and and george lucas like all these guys who who kind of broke into that world with very like different ideas and uh, different points of view. And they, they made movies young and they were, they were kind of just this, this really fascinating group. So I read a lot about them. I read a lot about the early days of the agency world. There's a great book called the mailroom that focuses on the, the, the kind of early days of the William Morris agency and some of the, the big, heavy hitters who were around uh, in that time and that that informed my entrance into Endeavor. And then the book, I, a really great book about those filmmakers I mentioned is uh, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, which kind of talks about that whole era and how how all, all those filmmakers got their start and, and kind of broke into the industry. And I think what I realized that the t- as I was getting into Endeavor and, and I was trying to break in is that the industry was very different. It's much more mature and it, it was not kind of this wild west time that I really revered. And of course, that's not to say you can always find an end, you can always find an opening, but it did feel a little bit like that ship had sailed and it was a it was a different world that I was trying to break into. And then at the same time, I started to look over to the startup world. And especially this digital media world, and saw something that, that a little bit more resembled what had appealed to me about kind of my interest in film and the 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 you know the era that I was really the biggest fan of. And one big big inspiration when when I was starting Bleacher Report was a cousin of one of my co-founders. This guy Jake Lodwick had been a co-founder of College Humor, and College Humor was an early breakout media website. It was kind of a, a mix of a lot of things, but obviously comedy focused. And Jake, who I had known growing up and we had made goofy videos together when we were in high school, he started with a, few, a couple friends in college and they had become successful and, and it had, had been doing well. And then right around the time that I was starting Bleacher Report, they ended up selling it to IAC that had a good exit and and, uh, and had like a, a really great success story. So that was that was a big inspiration seeing someone who I knew who had a personal connection to who was young, who was also kind of figuring things out on the fly, be able to go out and take a project like that with a few friends and make it successful. And it was very much kind of the template for what my co-founders and I at Bleacher put together. It's like, hey, if, if they can do it, we can. We're young. We're friends. We, we're passionate about this idea. We we really feel like we can we can just kind of do it ourselves. We don't need to ask for anyone's permission, which is huge. And again, going back to that contrast between working at a company where you're trying to work your way up the ladder, where it's very much everything's permission-based, to be able to just do it on your own is, is huge. And I remember another big watershed was seeing Kevin Rose and Dig become one of the, those first like big web 2.0 media darlings and 
I remember when Kevin was on the cover of, of Business Week and he was a little bit older than us, but he was young. He was the kind of this, this different look of like what an entrepreneur was like. And that was just another sign that, hey, this is a space that I feel like I can go into and, and that maybe that's the space to make your mark as opposed to working in this industry that's already kind of hit maturity. Right. And you're a part of tech Twitter and the creator space Twitter, and I'm a part of that too. So I read a lot of tweets and like, if you are somebody who is new to Twitter, like you realize that there is a formula to that. Like if you write threads, like I read all the shareholder letters of Jeff Bezos and that that thread is more likely to go viral than something original. But with you studying all these great filmmakers and people like Jake, like if they were in their early 20s right now on Twitter with, say, 100 followers and they were trying to build their own media brand or their own like creator audience, how would they approach Twitter with creating content? Like what would be the basic principles that they would follow on Twitter? You make an interesting point. I think it is true. A lot of Twitter is just kind of rehashing and the original stuff it's harder for it to it is harder for it to break through but i think you can use that to your to your advantage i think you go back to that that innovators dilemma approach and it's it is cheaper easier and quicker to rewrite someone else's story or or rehash you know rewrite a wikipedia article as a thread than it is to come up with something original and i think that's not to suggest never do anything original but it's kind of more like learn the medium and and learn how to take advantage of those growth mechanics to get your own growth and then start to to work in your 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 own original approach and bleacher was very much a lot of that a lot of the early content was not that original it was kind of summarizing things that were happening elsewhere or whatever but over time it it kind of built you know we we created more of an original voice and and we brought in higher quality writers and things like that. So I think it's it's a mix of kind of using the 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 growth mechanics that are there on the platform to your advantage, but also do it, you know, wrapping in your own originality. And I think ultimately creating creating a, a community and really kind of figuring out who who your tribe is and you don't need to necessarily grow as big as possible just for growth's sake, but really figure out like who you want to be reaching and engaging with and 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 hone in on that audience. Right. I think Trung at The Hustle is a master at this. Yeah, Trung is amazing. He's a beast. Yeah. And uh, you're also an advisor to Sampar at The Hustle. And you wrote that he he is a student of history. And maybe you can share your thoughts on that. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I was actually just hanging out with Sam over the weekend. And he, we were reminiscing a little bit. And you know, at this point, I've known him for for many years and seen the the growth and the success. And it was not obvious in the early days. I always thought he was just a, a very smart guy who was very driven to figure things out. But back when they were first getting going, there were very few people who thought like an email only publication could actually be successful. But he he continued to to chip away and figure it out. But one of the things he said is, and I remember this when he we first got connected, he studied what other people who had been successful did. And he kind of tried to like reverse engineer 
that success, not in a way of like trying to just replicate what they did. But he mentioned that even before we had met, he knew Bleacher Report was one of the the early digital media success stories. So he just studied kind of everything he could learn about our growth and our trajectory. And he he looked at articles that were written about our growth and what, what was out there. And he basically just like put that all in a timeline and said, okay, if I hit this milestone by this amount of time, I know I'm, I'm on the same, effectively the same track that Bleacher Report was on. And then he started, he started reaching out and basically learning from people. That's how we got connected. So he had first, Mike.com was doing quite well at the time. So he first connected with some, some of the people at Mike.com to kind of learn from them of what was working for them. And then through, through one of those guys, he got introduced to me and that's how we got to talking. And, and I, I appreciated that he was, he was doing something that was new and innovative at the time. An email focused publication was unique and the way that they were monetizing and growing was unique. What they had done with, with their conference was unique, but he was also trying to kind of learn from the best practices of other people who had done it and been there before. So I appreciated that curiosity, but also trying to combine that with trying to move the ball forward and not just replicate what was out there. Right. And when you became an advisor to The Hustle, I would assume that you get a lot of such opportunities. So when you chose to advise The Hustle, Sam, like what was it different about him that you don't see in a lot of creators? I mean, I think it was that both that curiosity, but also like the drive to to build a real business. And he, he had a little bit of an outsider mentality. He definitely had a chip on his shoulder, which which I liked. And and I, I truly believed in in what he was doing, and and uh, and that it was it was different and exciting. And I wanted to learn from him as well. He was doing different things that I hadn't done exactly that way before. And that I mean, that's something that I, I want to continue to to be exposed to new things. So that was that was definitely exciting to me. Right. And when you look at the media space today, who are the creators who have not gone mainstream and who are not super famous on Twitter or Substack or podcasting who you think are doing exciting and different things right? Well, I mean, he, I mean one that immediately comes to mind, he, he is, I would say, super famous on Twitter now, but I'm a huge fan of Pomp and yeah. what, what he has done and just his whole model. And I think of kind of, I see a lot of similarities in what he's done and kind of like how we built things at Bleacher Report and just being like super focused and also kind of tuning out the haters. Like we got a lot of hate in the early days of Bleacher Report. A lot of people who didn't believe in what we were doing. Uh, a lot of people who you know gave us flack for the quality of our content. Some of it deserved, but but it was what it was. Who gave us flack for how we grew and we we just focused on doing our thing and continually improving and really just growing relentlessly based on a, a very focused distribution plan and then continuing to level up and expand the business in the right areas. And I see a lot of that in Pomp and the way he's done it. And I remember when he was first getting some traction as the the crypto guy, the Bitcoin guy on Twitter a few years ago, and he kept going after it and you kind of have to you have to suspend your feeling of shame when you're doing something like that because i think you know people who maybe 
didn't have quite the the balls that he had might say, oh, I don't really want to you know put myself out there like this. And he was just, he went for it and he has grown incredibly well on Twitter. But I think then now starting to build all these other businesses around it, where you look at the, the empire that he's built between his newsletter, his podcast. Now he's got this, this daily live show. And of course the investing and, and, you know, the, the fund that he has under management, it's incredibly impressive. And to think that really that started by just honing in on a voice and a subject matter on Twitter and just being relentless about it. And I think that's something that any creator, really any builder in any business can, can learn from. And I think the fact that like he, that model is now something that Paulina is, is following on, you know, kind of in her own way. That, that Joe Pompliano is 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 following, and I think it's it's incredibly impressive that that it just shows they're they're each kind of taking those learnings from it and, and applying it to themselves and, and having great success. Right. I think one of the things that the Pomp Clan has also shown is that it's replicable, and you can just take that playbook and run with it and build your own audience. And I think the other thing I was going to talk about is this idea of self censorship or censorship in general. And a lot of it comes from when you create something and you get a lot of hate on social media for whatever reason, or maybe embarrassment because you have a very small audience, nobody's watching you, and you're like, oh, I'm posting a lot of tweets and nobody sees this. So how do you get over that mental barrier, especially in the very beginning when it's the most difficult? Yeah, it's something, it's it's hard. It's hard stuff. And I think it's it's hard no matter who you are or... I, I talk to all sorts of creators uh, who have achieved what seems to be incredible success. And they all talk about this, how hard it is to hit publish on things or their imposter syndrome or whatever. And I, it's something that, that I've, I feel every time I hit post or every time I write something or, you know, I've, I've every time I draft a tweet where I'm like, ah, should I really send this? Maybe not. Maybe I won't go there. And I think it, over time you, you, you learn to get over it or you condition yourselves or you hype yourself up or whatever, or you get more comfortable. But I think it's something that, that it's always there. And it's always, you know, something that is kind of nagging in, in the back of your mind in some way. And for me in my career, it's funny because this whole time I've been working in media, I've been building brands, building audiences and built Bleacher Report, sold it, built Inverse, sold it. I never really focused on, putting my own personal voice out there other than occasionally through the, or the random interview here and there. But I was never active on any form of social media. I never really wrote under my own byline other than like in the super early days of Bleacher Report. And I think part of, you know, most of that was due to that, that feeling of kind of hesitance to put yourself out there. And I almost kind of hid behind the brand's that I created and kind of would justify it and say, oh, well, I want to let the business speak for itself. And I'm just going to be the behind the scenes type person. And I think maybe part of that, part of my reasoning mentally is because Bleach Report did get so, so much flack early on. I kind of thought, like, well, I'll let Bleach Report take the flack and I'll just try to stay in the background because I don't want to catch that kind of heat. But I think ultimately... I did myself a disservice and in the last year I was decided to kind of come out from from the shadows and 
be more public and be more active beyond my own as a creator, I've really felt much more kind of secure in my own voice and, and fulfilled and being able to express myself creatively. And while I still feel that hesitation all the time, it's something that I think is, is so much more fulfilling to be able to kind of speak truly and, and, and be out there. And I think that's, that's something that a, a lot of people can, can, can learn from. And yeah, I encourage, I love, I love seeing, you know, new, new voices out there just doing their thing and, and putting themselves out there. And I think the reality is if you do something dumb, if you say the wrong thing or whatever, the vast majority of the time, no one cares. It's that worry that, that you're going to, you're going to slip up. But I think people, people are, have so much going on. You're, you're not, you're not getting the, you're not going to get the blowback that you think. And I think you get much more, you gain much more than you lose just by, by putting yourself out there. Right. And you have written a lot about two of your favorite bands, Fish and the Grateful Dead, and how they used certain tactics to build deeper fan experiences. What can creators learn from them at this moment and use them in their own creations? I think the biggest thing is creating a world and really thinking about how you can create this experience that's much more than just consuming a piece of content, but really feel like you are participating in, in that world. And that's something that both of those bands have done. I've, I've been a, a huge fan of both. Unfortunately, never saw the Grateful Dead when they were when they were fully the Grateful Dead, but have have consumed as much as I can of the diaspora of the Grateful Dead. And then a, a huge Fish fan. And really, when you go to one of those shows, there is a community. There is an iconography. There's a language that the fans speak. With fish, there's this whole thing. They have a secret language that they communicate with their audience. That you know, if they if they play a, a song a certain way, the audience might react in a certain way. And it's something you kind of just have to know and be be a part of the group to understand. But if you're new, then you kind of see other people doing it, and you can get get sucked into it. So there is very much an an, an interactive, deep, more deeply engaging way to approach it. And I think if you're a creator. It's it's about kind of like laying those Easter eggs for your audience, you know, giving them that that deeper way to get involved, creating a, a special language that only you and your audience really understand. And I think that's that's how you create that deeper connection. And you know, of course, we're hitting some completely new ways for you to build that deeper connection with the audience, with Web three and the ownership economy, and the idea of creating, uh, you know, tokenizing that relationship or creating uh you know those those special types of of items like you know digital items and nfts and things like that that you can you can share with your audience so i think there's all sorts of ways you can approach it but really it comes down to how can you build a world where your audience really feels like they're on the inside of it and they're sharing in that experience with you as opposed to just passively consuming your content right and you talking about the web3 and the NFTs and tokens, it it reminds me of this book I'm reading right now, which is The Unincorporated Man. And I don't know if you've heard of this book, but it's a Skype no. book. Oh, have you heard of it? No, no, I'd love to, uh, love to hear more about it. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a novel set around 300, 400 years from now. And it's the point when 
every person is trading in the stock market so you can buy stocks on me or Danny Miranda and just like companies if you own 51% of somebody you get to rule their lives and it's mm-hmm. a very interesting conversation about this world where people it's 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 a very decentralized world where if you are if you want to want to do something in life whether it's going to school going to college you can fund yourself by selling shares of yourself but then nobody owns 51% of themselves and there is this interesting balance between losing your freedom on one end and then you get these opportunities and so that is one exciting concept in that novel the other thing is it, it talks about the great collapse where technology is a decentralizing force but again as a creator there are hundreds of thousands of creators but it's a winner takes all world where a very few number of creators get all the audience and most of them don't and this is true for in all of the areas where technology has penetrated at this moment and there comes a point when the people who are poor are so divided with the rich that there is a revolution against the rich and i think you kind of see that right now where with jeff bezos and richard branson going to space i mean it's a good thing technologically and for all of humanity that we have these technologies out there they received so much flack on twitter because the thing of building is going to space and people are dying of covid so where do you see this heading in a general like in a general place where the rich are getting richer the poor are getting poorer but we have all these decentralizing forces at the same time yeah uh, well the book sounds fascinating uh, so i got to follow up with you to get the info uh, <laughs> it, it, i mean it sounds like a definitely a dystopian vision for where things could go and uh, let's face it there are a lot of things about today's world that are very dystopian so well we we typically think about that in terms of sci-fi or or the distant future i think we are living in a world that is at the same time dystopian in some ways and shows so much promise and potential in other ways and, and i think you can you don't need to just, to just believe in one or the other i think you can believe that both exist at the same time and we have the potential for certainly for one path to overwhelm the other but i do believe that i love the creator economy i think there's so much potential for it there's so much exciting about about it i at the same time i agree it has a lot of issues and it has a lot of you you do have this winner take all world where you have a small group of kind of you know super successful creators who get the lion's share of the value then you have a lot of people who are just kind of lured in by the promise of the creator economy who are just struggling to get by or establish themselves or build an audience or or to figure out how to monetize and i think it's it's just a question of you know how how do you solve for that in a way that creates value for as many people as possible and that's one of my goals with audience builders is to help to to get more of that that info out there that can help any creator any builder to to build their business and and kind of share those learnings more broadly especially around the operational sides it's it's i think a big assumption that creators can go independent and can just start you know kind of putting out a newsletter or creating videos for TikTok and that they'll just magic, magically build an audience and right. and then monetize using the tools out there i think like that it takes a lot of operational know-how and that's something that i really want to try to get out to the forefront but but yeah i think it it certainly you could see the creator economy becoming this big democratizing force that allows people to 
work for themselves and support themselves independently and and do exactly what they want. You could also see it it becoming more like the negative aspects of the gig economy where people are you know kind of promised that it's a way to make make it on their own but they they never really can can have a, a you know make a true living and they're just like you know they they lose the protections of what you have as a, a regular employee so i think it's it's all up to the people within these these spaces and kind of how they can you know build a you know a better collective environment for everyone and i think that is a a potential upside of web3 and the decentralized world and you think if you know if daos and and these kind of you know community oriented protocols can can help to to create a world that kind of lifts up everyone that would be great but it's we're still very early in that in that world and and it's a long way until till we can actually see the promise of it delivered right and uh, i want to talk about media and institutions because you've been in the media business for a long time and uh, it seemed like after world war 2 we we were at a place where we wanted to never go through a world war again and we formed all these institutions and we had with television and radio we had all these big media brands and they were incredibly powerful and right now with this divide you see institutions losing power and balaji writes a lot about this which is like institutions are losing trust but individual people are gaining trust trust and so people don't get their news from cnn or fox they get their news from joe rogan or sagar whatever like there are all these creators in all these different niches and so you being in the media business where do you think this goes in the next 2 or 3 decades where individual creators gain so much power i i believe that creators will start to look more like media companies i mean they already are you look at like you know the pomp example i mean effectively what what he has it looks like he's a creator it looks like paulina's creator it looks like joe pompano's a creator just an individual creator but really what they have is a media company where they are the voices in front of it and they have an, a whole operation going on behind the scenes to create uh, a, a media business you know operate a media business around it now that's one approach another approach is media companies leaning in more heavily to the creator space something like jared dicker has written a lot about this with his kind of exploration of media companies acting more like record labels or or you look at the example of how barstool has grown and kind of become like a, an incubator for creators i think we might start to see more of that where or you know what spotify is doing with rogan and and the other podcasts right. that they're bringing on so i think that may start to happen and i think you may also start to see more creators kind of banding together and kind of you know forming new media companies you know that are creator led but then have operators have have kind of some of the other shared services that you would see you know kind of at a more typical media company now we'll see it could be we could stay down this path of just all these solo creators and just them becoming big enough and just operating their 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 in their own area but but i think these things are cyclical right now we're seeing the massive unbundling where every individual is a creator is their own media company i think at some point we're going to start to see this this start to rebundle and that could be into new forms of media or it even could be a merging of old media and the creator led media so i think that'll be be really fascinating to see and it's really it's it's up to where the creators take things but also 
how the media industry continues to to evolve and adapt. Right. And you have been interviewed on so many shows. You have had so much experience creating content. And it seems like reading a blog, when you are a, a new creator, an amateur creator, it seems like novelty is a big part of uh, a big variable what determines whether or not you will be successful. And so with a theme like if, if you have a, a an interview substack or if you have an interview podcast and you have guests who have been on 20 other shows, like how do you bring novelty to a show like that? So I, I've, I would love to hear your take because I know you've, you are, you've been doing this for a while and I love these questions. So I love how much you've dug deep because it's something that yeah, I'm, I'm struggling with, with, with audience builders. And I think it's hard, like, there is so much content out there. There's so many, whether it's interviews or essays or tweets or whatever, like there's so much that's already been said that it does feel hard to be new and novel and to be original. I mean, for me, I think it comes down to curiosity. And if I'm, if I'm interviewing someone, uh, it's usually because I'm really interested in, some, in something they've said or what they, their body of work. So I'm already pretty familiar. And it just comes down to like, what you know, what have I not heard from them? What 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 did they say that they didn't fully explain that I want to dig in deeper? And I find that's also all, often the one of the best ways to get something new is just if someone's like talked about something that they've done or shared an idea, just ask them how. You know, how did they do that? Get into the details or or, or where did that idea occur to them? What you know, go kind of try to go for that one layer deeper of abstraction. And that often leads to to really interesting insights or just kind of the the story that that wasn't told the first time. Because clearly, if they've talked about it, if they brought it up, it's something that that they want to talk about. But I think a lot of interviewers just they they don't ask the deeper question or the follow up question that 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 leads to kind of the you know the 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 pulling the pieces apart that uh, that really 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 bring out some new insights. Right. Yeah. Yeah. On my end, I took a two month break to think about where I would like to take this podcast. And curiosity was a big part of that because in the beginning, the reason why I started this podcast was because one of my TikTok channels blew up. And then I was like a kid in the candy store because it's easier to get guests on the show, but difficult to make it different from all the other shows. And so, yeah, I took a two month break, focused more on research, and I still don't have an answer to that. But maybe if I keep on doing this, keep on iterating, maybe I can get to a point where I know exactly what I want to do and where I want to take this show. Yeah, yeah. And and how? I mean, what's what's been your like the best way for you to research or the best the best tool for getting those those interesting details that that you can bring out in an interview? Yeah. So for me, I was lazy before because I would just go through their podcast interviews or some like substack interviews that they might have given. But right now I've started being more focused on what is this person reading? What is this person listening? So the reason why I'm reading The Unincorporated Man is because I'm going to interview John Coogan, who was the founder of Soylent and recently Lucy. And it's one of his favorite books. So I'm reading that so that I can get some insights on how it might have influenced his thinking and how he sees the world. And so these, you know, like the research part takes a lot more time right now, but I'm enjoying it more. And I think my questions will be one level deeper than the other shows that he has been. That's great. That's great. No, I love that. Yeah. I mean, I think being able to, it's a great way to to deepen your, your understanding and you, 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 you might get help with the interview from that book, but it might just open new doors and ideas for right. you that, are going to lead to something else down the road. So 
I think that's a that's a wonderful approach. All right. Yeah. And thank you, Dave, for doing this. And thank you so much for your time. Thanks. Yeah. This has been awesome. And I'm going to go out and uh, and get that book to read too. <laughs> <laughs>